Romans chapter 5 is where we're heading. We're continuing um, in the series, uh, the love of God, God's love displayed uh, through Christ. Uh, The Jameses filled in the last couple uh, Sundays and they did a knockout job. And so we're continuing now uh, in this series, looking at Romans chapter 5, and we're going to look specifically at verses 1 through 11. We're going to zone in specifically to verse 8, but we're going to kind of cover a bit of the context here in Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul is writing to the churches in Rome, and he states this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified, made right, legally made right with God by faith, we have now peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We stand in our justification. We stand in this grace. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And and, and not only that, he breaks it down a little bit, but he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? What's the foundation for our hope? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then he explains that love explains the love that has been given to us. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. He commends his love. He puts it on display for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been now justified, made right by the blood of Jesus Christ, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Judgment no longer hangs over our head. Condemnation is nothing that we will face. We have been saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also, again, rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The question I want to just cover this morning is how great is God's love? How great is God's love? Uh, And even when you pose a question like that, how great is God's love? The word great tends to be a bit fuzzy and like we use it in all kinds of different ways. And the word love is kind of fuzzy and stretchy and in our culture is used in all kinds of different ways. When when we consider the word great, you know, it's uh, similar to uh, the, the goat. Who is the goat in any given sport, right? Who's the greatest of all times? You know, when it comes to basketball, for me, it's Jordan. There's just no other, like, argument that you can bring to the table to prove to me that there is someone who is greater than Jordan. LeBron just doesn't make it, right? It's Jordan who is, in my mind, 
the greatest, right? But I can't prove that by just the fact that he was my man growing up, always watching Jordan, always thrilled by Jordan. It's not enough to just have thrill. It's not enough to just have feeling. I need some sort of objective statistic, some sort of objective measurement by which to say, yes, Jordan was truly the greatest. When it comes to the word great, we have to be careful that it's rooted in some sort of objective reality, some sort of statistical uh, uh, balance or average or comparison, right? Same is true with the word love. It's stretchy, it's fuzzy, it's all over uh, the place at times. Uh, I can say I love pizza, right? That is very different than perhaps saying I love the eagles or giants or, God forbid, the cowboys. Kevin Long, we are praying for you, man. Or when it, com when it comes to saying, I love my spouse. Those are all different loves. And so when it comes to the word love, it's stretchy, it's fluid, it's used in all kinds of different ways uh, that at times may be confusing when we ask something like, how great is God's love? But even when it comes to this relational love, there's still within our world this fuzziness, this, this, this strange idea of love. Even Jody and I have been going through the series Poldark. Um, it's kind of, it, it's set back post-revolutionary time, uh, southern coast of England, and, and it's all about this couple who has become married, and they go through all these challenges, but one of the subplots is their marital love. Their idea of love it has become uh, kind of tested over time throughout the story, and so they consider these other loves beyond their own marriage to be something that they have to go explore and see if that love is greater than their own marital love, and so they go taste and see. But going and tasting and seeing and exploring these other quote-unquote loves only does damage to their own marital love, such that when they go through certain trials and difficulties, you're always waiting to see as the audience, is this love going to last? Now that does a lot of good for entertainment's sake. But none of us would want that kind of love. We would never want to weather the storms of life with that kind of wishy-washy idea of love. So it begs the question once again, how great is God's Love. In answering that particular question, the Apostle Paul presents a love so great that it actually is meant to be something of a rock-solid hope for us amidst all kinds of suffering. Just note what he says in chapter 5, verse 3. He says, we rejoice. We rejoice in suffering. We don't just kind of get by. No, we're actually rejoicing in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's this great love that is the foundation for our hope amidst all kinds of life's sufferings. And notice, we can have now even such a confidence this morning of understanding this love, of knowing the true greatness of God's love, because God has expressly poured out His Spirit into us. 
such that the Spirit would profoundly, fully grant us something of the experience of the greatness of this love. So that we may not only endure suffering, but actually rejoice through it. So, again, the question stands. We have the Holy Spirit backing us, helping us understand this incredible love that gives us rejoicing amidst life's trials, helping us understand something of God's love. But the question still stands, how great is God's love? What we're going to do is just kind of work through an outline of verse 8 a bit. We see the greatness of God's love in that first and foremost, Christ died. Christ died. Now, notice what the Apostle Paul is doing. He has just referred to the love of God and how it's experienced through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We get to know something of the love of God because the Holy Spirit ministers that love to us. God's love is meant, in other words, to be experienced. It's essential for the Christian life. But what Paul is doing is taking that relational experience of the Holy Spirit's ministry within us and grounding it in historical fact. He's taking the subjective feelings that we encounter in the, in, in the spiritual life, right? We, these subjective feelings of God's love that comes to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is doing, he's anchoring them in objective historical fact. That there was God's love uniquely displayed in a time with a person in a particular place. So Paul emphasizes in verse 6, he says, at the right time, Christ died. It was a particular person at a particular time who died. It's the fact that God's love is, yes, experienced by the Holy Spirit, but it's not an unhinged experience. It's not an experience for experience' sake. It's not feelings or experiences that are kind of adrift from some sort of baseline reality. No, the incredible experience of the love of God given to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to be firmly anchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For while the ministry of the Spirit is essential, it is essentially tethered into the objective historical work of Jesus Christ. You say, what's the point? This is utter safety for our souls. For when our experience with the Spirit ebbs and flows, perhaps when faith may even falter through suffering, maybe when tragedy overwhelms us, and it will at times, there is a sure anchor for our souls, the glorious cross of Jesus Christ. It's Christ's death that objectively displays the extraordinary love of God for the suffering soul. And so Paul states, verse 8, but God shows his love for us, right? It's to say that God, and the word being used there, constantly, objectively, and publicly has pulled back the curtain and continuously displays his love for us. How? In the fact that Christ died for us. The objective reality of Christ's death for us is utter safety for our souls. When we don't feel it, 
we go to the cross and we behold it, God's love displayed for us who are sinners. Now, just as one uh, may need statistics, right, or, or, or a clear comparison to understand the greatness of an athlete, the goat, right, so herein we begin to grasp something of the greatness of God's love, something of the quantity, the quality, something of the height, the depth, the breadth of God's love. Christ died. Christ died. The title Christ, of course, is meant to describe the anointed, promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He's the King of glory. He's the Son of God. And he then is, in the New Testament, realized in Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. He is the great I Am. He is the creator of life who did not grasp a hold. Remember Philippians 2. He didn't grasp a hold of his heavenly glory, but humbled himself He set his heavenly crown to the side. He took on the form of a servant being made in the likeness of man and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He would willingly, and this is all kind of freighted into this title of Christ, he would come from the highest heights and come down to us to suffer and suffer a prolonged region. Think about the cross. You think about uh, even the courtroom experiences for Jesus and the stages of agony that he endured up to that cross where he finally declared, it is finished. It was the author of life, the creator of life, giving up his life for us. As the creator of life, he took on human life to give up his life and to do so for us. To say Christ died is no small thing. What Paul is bringing to mind is the highest heights from which Christ came, the creator of life taking on life that he might give his life for us. That in itself is off the charts. You want a comparison? You want some sort of objective way in order to understand the greatness of God's love? You could begin there. Who else has done such things? Who else has come from glory down to earth to take on human limitation in order to succumb to death as the author of life? Christ did, and he did for us. This, in part, is the beginning of understanding the greatness of God's love. But then the text goes on. Secondly, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice the comparison that Paul uses, verse 7. He's showing us, again, just how great, how extensive the love of God is as it's been displayed in Christ. And he states, verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. He's saying, humanly speaking, giving one's life for another isn't isn't anything that's unheard. It's not inconceivable. Maybe, yeah, you've seen it, you know, the war stories, whatever else. Someone dying for perhaps a comrade, someone who is righteous, someone who's... Who, who is not unjust, right? They're, they're, they're righteous. They're doing okay. They're morally upstanding. 
Uh, and, and maybe even more so you've seen someone die for, you know, someone who is good, which literally means they're, they're, they're one who actually brings about good things for the sake of the community. They have a good reputation within the community. And Paul is saying, yeah, yeah, you may be able to conceive the fact that someone may die for a righteous person, perhaps even for a good person. But once again, it is off the charts. It is almost, it is, it is practically inconceivable. Even in worldly terms, borderline insane. That one would die for his enemy. And that, Paul is saying, is the depths to which Christ has gone. That's the extent to which God's love has reached. It is reached to his very enemy. And you, you can't argue with kind of what Paul is saying here because he describes this enemy in all kinds of different ways. He describes us in all of these different ways. In verse 6, he refers to us as those who were weak and ungodly. To be weak is to be morally incapable of making oneself right with God. It's that Ephesians 2 reality where we're spiritually flatlined, we're incapable of justifying our own selves, where even our acts of righteousness are nothing but filthy rags. The idea is you can't, you can't do enough. You can't do enough as the enemy, as the sinner, as the ungodly one that you are to make yourself right with God, to clean yourself up enough for God you are weak. You can't do enough. But then he'll say, to refer to us as those who were ungodly. And the idea here is that those who are ungodly are those whom the wrath of God resides over. It hangs over the ungodly. So Paul has already said in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. It's the same word that Paul is pointing out that we once were. We once were ungodly. And again, the ungodly are those who live under the wrath of God, not only in that they await this eternal judgment, this damnation, but that God in chapter 1, as Paul states, has given these who are ungodly up to the consequences of their own passions and desires. Passions and desires, by the way, that are both Irreligious and religious. God gives them over to the consequence of their own ways. And Paul then describes the kind of decay of society that takes place as those who pursue their own passions and desires. It's one way in which God's wrath has been revealed against them. He allows them to have what their hearts want, but it only brings about chaos and consequence. Paul reminds us we were weak, we were ungodly. He also goes on verse 8 and verse 10 to say, oh, by the way, yes, we were sinners and enemies. A sinner is one who is morally guilty. As Paul has said already in his argument through the first few chapters, he has said that we are all as sinners without excuse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were sinners. But not only were we just sinners, but notice, 
Chapter 5, verse 10, we were enemies. We weren't passive sinners, right? We were active sinners. We were enemies, actively standing against the purposes, the honor, the glory of God. We were guilty in that sense, Paul is saying, of high treason against the throne of God by, as Paul will state in earlier chapters, by suppressing the truth, by actively being ungrateful. Chapter 1, verse 21, that's an astonishing statement. Paul will take all the moral decline of society and hinge it on this one beginning, what we would say is a small little sin. It's the sin of ingratitude. It struck me when I'm studying through it. Because I, I can be thankful for things and fail to be thankful to him. I can be thankful for something, but I can often fail to be thankful to someone. And Paul is stating, this is active ungodliness. This is enemy-like. Where we would suppress the truth, where we would act in ungratefulness, where we would pursue our own perverted passions and pleasures. Or even, as Paul will state in chapter 2, where we would even attempt to attain our own righteousness through religiosity. Paul is saying even some who are religious are actually enemies against God. Why? Because they're attempting to attain their own standing with God through their own efforts. And Paul is simply saying, do you see yourself here? Do you see who you once were? For this, then, is the depths to which God's love displayed through Christ has reached. Christ died, not for a righteous person, not even for a good person, but for his own enemies, those incapable of true righteousness, those inexcusable for all their unrighteousness. They are those who are deserving of the fury of God's eternal wrath, and that is for whom Christ has died. This, of course, is to emphasize, as we've talked a lot about, substitutionary atonement. He died for us. He came from the glories of heaven, the innocent God-man, to suffer as the guilty party in our place. It's, if, it's as if I would stand before the gates of the Hoover Dam, right? And in a moment, God is unleashing the, the fury of his wrath. He's opening up the floodgates of his wrath upon me and it's in that moment that Christ is stepping in front of me and he's taking on all the infinite crushing weight of God's wrath on my behalf so it is absorbed in him and that there is not even a residue that falls upon me. Christ came in my place to absorb the penalty that I deserve as Yes, one who is weak, as one who is ungodly, as one who is a sinner, as one who is an enemy of God. This is what Christ has done for us. What a love. But the wording of the text just isn't meant to just kind of leave you with this substitutionary atonement idea. As much as it's there, there's more that Paul is emphasizing. There's more to be seen in terms of this just being inconceivable off the charts. As great as that kind of love might be, the emphasis of the text is this, verse 8, while you were yet sinners, 
Christ died for you. That is to say, yes, he stood in your place, but he stood in your place when you weren't looking for him. When you weren't looking for him, he came looking for you. When you weren't aware of your need for him, he was already working for you. When you weren't seeking him, he never lost sight of you. But when you raged against him, he came nearer still. Folks, this is the glorious, when it comes down to it, I'm going to go here. This is the glorious doctrine of election, right? That Paul will get into actually later in this book. He's going to, he's going to begin some of the argument here. He's going to finish it out in, in chapter 9 and 10. But this is the doctrine of election. It was never meant to be this divisive, dividing doctrine that only just kind of consumes us with debate. It was meant to cause your heart to take wonder in the glorious greatness of God's love. When you didn't see him, he saw you. When you didn't know him, he knew you from before the foundation of the world. He planned to make every provision for you such that it might be truly said, while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. This is the greatness of God's love that has been clearly, objectively poured out before us, put on display for us in Christ who came from highest glory to the lowest pit to satisfy the eternal wrath that you and I deserve. And he did so when we had no eyes for him. How great is God's love. But not only that, one last point. As Paul goes on to say, he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But in verses 9 through 11, he has done so in order to reconcile us. So in verses 9 through 11, there's so much more to be said there. We don't have time to jump into it. But Paul leaves us with a clear point, for in each verse, this word reconciliation comes to the forefront. Reconciliation is not just setting the guilty free, not just taking the enemy and kind of clearing the debt of offense. Reconciliation refers to the mending of a relationship. It's about intimacy. It's about friendship. It's about family. The love of God does not only come from the highest glory to the deepest pit to save the undeserving sinner from God's wrath, but to save him to God's family. This is reconciliation. In chapter 8, as Paul will, he's beginning an argument here in chapter 5, he's going to kind of close out his argument in chapter 8. And Paul will more specifically say of this reconciliation that it is, in fact, an adoption that has taken place. It's an adoption of children. It's as though God has brought his, his own kids in, into his family. They were once enemies, but they are now his children by which they can now cry out to him in moments of difficulty, in moments of suffering, in moments when life is backward. They can cry out, Abba, Father. He invites it. He wants it. He desires it. He's a God who's made every provision 
for it. You see, the love of God does not only come from the highest glory to the deepest pit to save the undeserving from God's wrath, but to save him to God's family. Folks, this then is how God has objectively, clearly chosen to demonstrate, to show, to commend the greatness of his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in order to reconcile us, in order to make us his very own sons and daughters. It's a love that is just simply off the charts. There is no other love that has come from such high heights down to such low lowest of the low in order to save the enemy and in order to make that enemy family. This is the love, this self-giving, constant and forever agape love that has spanned the highest heights and has gone to the deepest depths for the undeserving. And so as we began, Paul says that it's this love objectively displayed in Christ, but uniquely experienced by the Spirit that gives us hope. A hope that rejoices. A hope that just doesn't endure. This doesn't give by. But a hope that rejoices amidst all kinds of suffering. The question then is, do you know the greatness of God's love? Perhaps you've never come to faith in Jesus. Perhaps you're online and you're just jumping in for today and, and you say, okay, this kind of love stuff is, is, is new to me, what Christ has done. Yeah, I've heard about it, but I'm not sure about it. Uh, I'd encourage you. I'd encourage you. In these moments, it's not a mistake that you're on, that you're watching. God wants you to know his love. It's what he is about in redemptive history. He has come from highest heights to the lowest depths in order to secure us as sinners, as enemies to himself. And it comes freely. Christ has paid everything necessary for you to know something of the love of God. It's not about trying to do everything on your own in order to be good enough for God. We can never be good enough for God. Christ has done it all. I'd encourage you, even in these moments, that you would just throw your heart before the Lord and say, God, if you're, if you're real, if you're there, this is the love that I need. And I'd encourage you just to ask. Ask the Lord. Say, give him all of your brokenness. Give him your sin. Give him your backwardness and say, will you, will you show me this love? And he will, for he secured it through Jesus Christ. Go to him Rest in him, call upon him. As Paul will say, all who call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. The Father will have you. Now for the believer, maybe this season, I don't know about for you, but it's been so for me. It, it, it's particularly destabilizing. It feels like everything's backward, everything's strange, everything's off kilter. Um, and I wonder in the... In the sufferings, in, in the time where things are just different, perhaps your wonder in God's great love has maybe grown cold. 
Maybe it's just grown stale in different ways. There's reason to take hope for a few different reasons. First and foremost, the Spirit is with us. The Spirit is there. The infinite God is there to make the love of the Father known to us, to pour it out in our souls. He's there to give us the experience of this great love. And not only is he there to give us the experience of this great love, he takes the experience that maybe, maybe ebbing and flowing in our own hearts and minds, and he anchors it into this objective reality that Christ has died for sinners like us. Oh, if you don't feel it, go behold it. And there, take dependence upon the Spirit. O Spirit, awaken my eyes afresh to the glories of God's love for me. Let me experience it over again and in greater measure. May it be that my heart might find something of rest, something of hope when life seems all so different in this season. If you don't feel it, go behold it. Go check out just who Christ is and what he's done for you. This morning, what we're going to do then, finally, is we're going to take communion together. So if you're at home, I'm going to give you a little bit of time. I'm going to ask the musicians to go ahead and come forward. Um, Give you a little bit of time, perhaps, to go to the kitchen. If you haven't pulled out your cracker and your juice, uh, I'd encourage you to do that at this point. It's astonishing, is it not, that God would grant us and command us to participate in a certain act, right? The bread and the cup. And, and that we would take these elements and that we would take them in to us, right? As, as a way to objectively anchor us into the sure, amazing, great love of God. God loves us, but he's objectively, wonderfully, incredibly demonstrated that love in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so then he commands us, church, I I, I don't want you to become untethered from that incredible love. I want you to kind of get your face into the reality of my love for you because it came at great cost to me. Came at the cost of Jesus Christ, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed. And so we participate in communion, anchoring our souls into this objective reality of the greatness of God's love as it has been put on display through Christ. So what, I'm, what we're going to do here is we're going to go ahead and have our procession to grab the elements. I'd encourage you, if you're at home and you're still like questioning this Jesus thing, just don't, just continue to observe Continue to think about just what Christ has done for you, the great love that has been displayed uh, to you. But for those of you who know the saving reality of Jesus Christ, uh, let's remember this objective reality. Let's remember the greatness of God's love. So go ahead and uh, grab your elements. I'm going to ask those here. We can go ahead and proceed down to the front. And in a moment, we'll take those elements together. Just to come from your table, just to drop from your well, is all I desire, it's enough to fulfill. But you welcome the hungry, the weary and the 
to a river of life, to a heavenly feast. want to do something that we've done in the past. Who distributes to us the love of God as it's been objectively displayed through Christ? Who, who dispenses that but the Holy Spirit? And it's right for us to take a time in these moments to say, Holy Spirit, come we yield ourselves to you. We ask you to fill us afresh. We receive the love that you bring to us. And we defend, we defend that experience from the enemy who would try to say, come and say that, that, that love is nothing. That love is small. <laughs> no, we have the objective reminder, a reminder of that objective reality in our hands. It was Christ who died for us. So maybe you've remembered how we've done this in the past by the acronym YARD. We yield, we ask, we receive, we defend. Holy Spirit, we need you now to come and to fill us afresh. So right now, Holy Spirit, we yield to you. We've given our minds to things that are unsubstantial, We've given our minds to things that are only a distraction to the greater glories of your love. So we surrender our minds, our thoughts to you. God, we surrender our, our emotions to you. Where our emotions have ebbed and flowed and have some ways have felt off through <laughs> this season. Spirit of God, thank you that you transform our souls, our psyches. Thank you that you are the one who serves even our emotional well-being. So even right now, we surrender our emotions to you. Spirit of God, we surrender our eyes to you. We've looked upon things that we should not look upon. We've looked upon things to lust after them, to want them, to desire them, to think that those things would make us maybe feel a little bit better. And we have failed to look to you. 
be reminded of your incredible love for us. Holy Spirit, we yield our hands and our feet to you, our very bodies to you. This temple is yours, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we yield to you, Holy Spirit, we yield to you. We lay ourselves before you. And now we ask that you would come and that you would fill us, that you would fill our minds, that you would tend to our emotions, that our eyes would quickly run to the things that would only honor you. That our hands and feet, that our bodies would be used ultimately to honor you. Spirit, now come and fill us. Fill us. We ask specifically, according to the passage in Romans 5, that you would pour out the love of the Father over our hearts even now. That we might not only know the glories of Calvary, but we would feel it. That we would see the extent to which Christ you've gone on our behalf to bring your enemy into your family. Fill us afresh, Holy Spirit. We receive you. We receive you as the gift that you are. The Father, when we ask for a loaf of bread, does not give us a stone. Father, thank you. You are eager to pour out your Spirit upon us. And so we receive as the gift that he is. Spirit of God, we receive you even now. We receive you. Fill us, O oh God. We stand against the enemy who would want to confuse that love even now. He would say you don't need the experience of a Holy Spirit. Oh, Spirit, oh, do we need you. <laughs> we want our minds to be saturated in the glories of Calvary, but we haunt our hearts filled full with the profound love of the Father. So we defend. We defend. We stand against the enemy who would want to distract us from the experience of your incredible love, for your fatherly touch. We need your fatherly touch, fresh. So we yield, we ask, we receive, we defend. In Jesus' name. Let's take the elements remembering the incredible love that we've been shown, the objective love of God displayed to us through Christ. Let's take them together. Father, we thank you. While it was right for us, stand under your wrath. Thank you that you sent your son, Jesus. Beautiful was your obedience. Incredible, astounding was your humiliation that you would come down to us. Simply amazing that you would stoop to the depths of sinners like us and die. How good of a king you are, how wonderful a brother 
You are what an incredible high priest. You've been to the pit of our despair. You know it. You can sit with us. You can comfort us like no one can. And Holy Spirit, we exalt you. We thank you that you are ever present to minister to us and to freshly extend the love of the Father to us. How great is the love of God. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name.
if you're maybe online and you're watching and maybe, maybe you've said, Christ, I, I need you, uh, I'd encourage you to reach out uh, to us, email us, me message us on Facebook, uh, give us a call, do, do whatever to reach out. We'd love to interact with you. Uh, if you need prayer, um, I know this has been a strange season and so there's unique difficulties. Um, be, please just, yeah, reach out to us. Uh, email us. We want to we wanna labor hard pastorally in prayer during, during this time. Uh, we, we would love the opportunity to just intercede for you. Now by way of benediction, uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 14, it says, Now may the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, may he grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in his love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Grace and peace to you guys.